I am Edu Grau, and this is the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. How's it going? I am doing extra awesomely. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Hey, uh, we have a great show today. We have Edu Grau on the show. And uh, Edu has actually heard the show. He, he listens to us. He's what? a fan. So I know that was, that was Hi, wonderful. Hi, Edu. How's it going? Yeah, no, I mean, it was great. Yeah, so uh, so he'll definitely be listening to this episode since he already listens to us and he's on the show. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, it's great because, you know, sometimes how it is when we talk to people who've never heard the show before we kind of have to explain what you know what the show's about and how we're doing yeah. it and everything else and it, it was like it was so easy and so smooth and so great with with edu he's like yeah i i, I know he, I, he's lo- heard I, I mean uh i love all of our guests but when i talk to a guest who's heard the show I, there's just less for me to explain to them so yeah absolutely we get that much more time to chat I, and yeah exactly I, and also i just like doing less work that's just me though. <laughs> just super lazy just want to yeah. do nothing so let's get into our close focus uh, topic for this week, which I think is a lighter thing for us to talk about, but I think it's a really cool thing. And it's uh, the new documentary series on Disney Plus called The Beatles Get Back. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see this. I only watched some of the trailer, but man, it looks like it was remastered uh, beautifully. Yeah, so I, I started watching it. I'm not all the way through it, obviously. But what's fascinating is it's about the making of the album Let It Be. And I didn't know any of this about it, but apparently the Beatles set themselves an outrageously short turnaround to do a live taping of their new album, their new material. And, you know, you don't really think about it that much, but I was looking at it. The Beatles put out in like 10 years or something, they put out 12 albums. Those guys were really prolific. And at a certain point, they stopped touring. So at the beginning of this documentary, they kind of explained that they wanted to go back into the studio. What's interesting about this is that there already was a movie made out of this footage, which was shot by Tony Richmond, a DP DP who has actually said he would come on our show at some point, but we haven't gotten him on yet. We we better get on that. (laughs) But he, he shot this stuff and they already made a movie about it. But Peter Jackson got into the vault and like they were rolling cameras all day long, nonstop while they were writing. So you're peering over the shoulders of literally John, Paul, George and Ringo in their writing process, how they wrote a song. And anyone who's a fan of this podcast, we talk about the creative process. That's what we talk about here. I think you would love this, even though they are making music and not a movie because you're watching collaboration. You're watching live in-person collaboration. And what's interesting too, is that like my whole life, the Beatles were just put up on a pedestal as the Titanic gods of pop stardom. And when you watch this, they're just like, Four dudes trying to make it work. And it looks gorgeous. They retransferred all the original source footage and cleaned it up. That's something Peter Jackson, uh, Peter Jackson did that with that World War One documentary a couple of years ago. I think he's really good at restoration. And so it almost looks like it could have been shot yesterday. Do you see what I did there? <laughs> I it was shot sure yesterday. Did. 
also the title of a great Beatles movie that came out just a couple of years ago. I kind of feel like the Beatles are having a moment. They're they're kind of everywhere. Apple TV did the Paul McCartney 321 just a couple of months ago. It's like the Beatles are having some sort of this this moment right now of, of resurgence and nostalgia and God, I even just watched the Saturday Night Live holiday special and they ended it with a, a live performance where Paul McCartney came up out of the audience and, and joined uh, Bruce Springsteen on stage and did a whole thing. So it's like, it's kind of a moment right now for the Beatles. Not like the Beatles ever went away. It's not like they ever did, but all this time and all these years later to still kind of like be in the zeitgeist and to be out there. It's I'm really looking forward to this. It uh, it seems like they have such a constricted schedule to make this happen back whenever this was, you know, whenever this was shot. I mean, it's literally ago, like so. three weeks. It's, so and, and they make it kind of a deal in the in the documentary. They show you on the calendar when they started and when the actual show is going to be. So it's like you don't even really think about it. But that album's like damn near an improv exercise for these guys. I mean, you have to put restrictions on yourself in order to to bring out, I think, the creative juices sometimes. If you just have unlimited time, yes, maybe you can make that work. But actually having to be under a deadline, having to limit your your resources and limit whatever's happening, then that, you know, that that becomes where some of the best creativity uh, springs forth. I, I can't and also wait. A- after being like immersed in studio technology and doing all kinds of like crazy technological stuff in the studio, they wanted it to be something that they could perform live with no studio mm. trickery, which I think is also kind of a cool restriction to put on yourself. Not that, you know, some of my favorite music doesn't rely on like 90% studio trickery, but you know, I, I think that there's something to be said of the kind of in-person quality of, of live performance, like what they wanted to do. I agree 100%. I think and I'm not all uh, the way through it. So like I know based on the trailer that at some point George Harrison walks out and they bring in a new they bring in a pianist who is extremely involved in a lot of their creative process. And there's like a, a very Frederick Wiseman quality to the way Peter Jackson has put this together. By the way, I think it's a little weird that Peter Jackson is taking directing credit because obviously he wasn't there when a frame of it was shot. He's just like producing the edit. How do you feel about that? I mean, I'm not I'm not crapping on Peter Jackson at all. I just think it's a little odd to call yourself the director when you didn't direct it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you could certainly claim that an editor is very responsible for the story and for how the whole thing turns out in the end. The could be- also, a producer can guide and edit, uh, you know, any kind of producer. Uh, the, the guy who directed it, his name is Michael Lindsay Hogg. And there is a movie called Let It Be that came out in 1969 that is made from the same footage. So he was the director. He was the guy on and he's in the film. You see him in the film. He's the guy who's there on set guiding the documentary process. Maybe when the footage was sold to Peter Jackson... That was a contingency that uh, he would pay extra or he would give some some amount of money to also then be able to put director credit on on this whole thing. I just think it's an interesting thing. Like, I don't know if I was taking over somebody else's thing. I don't know that I would want directing credit unless I had a legitimate claim to having directed it. And I think that supervising the edit is a producing and executive producing. It's a lot of things, but I don't know that it's directing. A hundred percent. And you could also say, uh, you know, editor, you could take editing credit, even if he didn't uh, work the controls, but he could take editing yeah. credit if he was like, you know, shave two frames off of this, remove this around, bring this forward, do this. and, well, that and the I, other. I have heard that Peter Jackson's been working on his editing resume in case uh, in case the work dries up for him. So <laughs> I think he's safe, <laughs> especially with like I just heard uh, September now for another Lord of the Rings thing, a Lord of the Rings television series now or something. So is he doing that? I, I, thought I don't know if it's him, but I mean, I. 
who knows who knows but i already yes lord of the rings is coming to one of the streaming services and maybe we can get lord of the rings and the beatles together somehow <laughs> well with peter jackson doing this you're kind of getting a little bit right there so mm. cool so shall we go ahead and get into the interview yeah let's get into the interview with edu grau here he is the cinematography podcast interview Edu Grau, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. It's a pleasure. Big fan of what you do, guys. Hey, uh, you've got a new movie that just came out. It's on Netflix. It's called Passing. It's a period piece, and it's directed by Rebecca Hall, first-time director, but, you know, longtime actress and, and star of and co-star of many movies. Um, tell me a little bit about you and your relationship with Rebecca, because I know you've worked before while uh, you were shooting and she was an actress. How, how did this, uh, this project happen? Yes, I actually did two movies with her, one uh, The Awakening in 2011 and one called The Gift, uh, directed by Joel Edgerton in 2015. And she was the main actress on, the, on both films and she was just a joy to work with. She was one of those actors that are not only about performance, they are filmmakers, you know, they are team players. They, they are aware of everything that is happening on the frame, everything that is happening on the set and, and the story. And they put it together in their heads and they help the filmmaking. So it was always clear to me that Rebecca at some point was going to direct, you know, that there was no doubt. And she contacted me to do a short film that I was not available, uh, able to do at the end. And then when the movie happened, uh, it just happened that she called me one day and was like, can you jump on, start prepping, you know, in two days? And I jumped on a plane and just fell into the movie, which uh, was a joy, it was amazing, an amazing opportunity. So I cannot complain. I was, I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time once again in my life. So I cannot wow. complain. That is amazing. Okay, so uh, you didn't have a lot of time before prep. Did you at least get some good time during prep then to, to put this movie together? Yeah, no, no, I mean, like I had a normal prep for the movie, you know, it was it was just like, a, yeah, like I think four weeks. So I had time to test and to kind of read again and again the script and the book and get into Rebecca's head, which, you know, she, she had been preparing the movie for 12 years. So so she had a very, very good understanding of all the different elements and different parts of, of the storytelling needed, you know. So she worked very hard and it was actually kind of understanding where she was going and just trying to help to make it happen, to elevate it when I could, to just follow the rules when I had to and, you know, and, and just be, be a team player with, with the rest of the crew, you know. When you have a great leader like Rebecca, it's it's always easier for cinematographers. And, and this, this case was exceptional because actually the cinematography is so related to the film itself. It's, it's not only the look of the film, it's also the storytelling, the narrative of it. You know, it's just, you, you, the movie would be totally different if it was in color, if it was not 4-3. It was like, it actually tells so much about the characters uh, and where the movie is that actually it's kind of a dream come true for a, for a cinematographer. So, you know, it was a joy. 
Well, we're, we're definitely going to get into the fact that it's a, it's a black and white movie and it's uh, in 4x3, which uh, black and white, maybe not necessarily an unheard of choice. And 4x3, it's been done before recently, but I will say that it, not much. But before we dive into that, I just want to give a, a quick sort of description of the movie for the people who haven't seen it. So it's based on a book by Nella Larson and it's a period drama. How would you go about uh, describing the story? It's quite difficult, but I would say like two school friends meet after a long time apart and they realize that they have taken different paths in life, although coming from a very similar place. And it's related to the race and identity and, you know, obviously also femininity and, and being in Harlem in 1930s, you know. It, it, it's a 1930 Harlem story, a sort of upper class women. And basically there's a theme that runs through it, of course, of, of passing of uh, black women who are passing for white, in particular uh, one woman and also her childhood friend. My understanding is that Rebecca Hall, her grandfather passed as white and that there was like a, a personal connection with this. Uh, was this uh, a topic of, at all of conversation or that something that was brought up during uh, production? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's obviously one of the questions that everyone asks her, which I think it's it's somewhat sometimes a little bit unfair. You know, you you don't need to be an astronaut to talk. You know, to make a movie about astronauts. Sometimes, no, you know, not, but, not at all. But you know, it is one of those topics that comes. And and the truth is that like um, she had something going on in her family was she that she didn't totally understand growing up and it was that um, her grandfather passed as as white for a long time and her mom always kind of hide it away from her and until she read pa- passing the novel from Nana Larson um, she didn't understand that that was actually even a possibility in in England you know in um, so it was a it was an interesting process for her. It was a personal process as much as a filmmaking process for her, and it's like a, it was also another element that made it interesting. And it was a very uh, compact shooting schedule. It sounds like as well too. Only twenty three days is is that is that correct? So you had a lot to do in a little time. <laughs> yeah, twenty three days and no reshoots. You know, so it was like wow. um, pre pre contained shooting in New York is never easy. And yeah, so it was it was tough. It was not the, an easy schedule, but it does help when when you have a director that is very clear of what she wants, what she needs to tell the story, and the way she wants to tell it. You know, so all the all those elements did help. Well, let's talk a little bit about black and white and four by three because I, I feel like in this case they they kind of go together, but maybe not. Maybe for different reasons. Black and white. Uh, I'm a huge fan of black and white, and I I have to compliment you on on your work that you did in black and white because working in black and white is not the same as working in color, and uh, unless you used a a monochrome camera, of which there's there's very few out there, and I, I don't know if you did for this. Uh, that means that you're having to desaturate or apply some sort of post processes, and monitoring on set can be a can be a challenge. Uh, can you talk a little bit about maybe it was uh, an instant unanimous decision? Everyone wants black and white, but usually the overlords of a studio fight against it. Maybe most famously recently was uh, Mad Max Fury Road, all composed and shot on on set, everyone viewing in black and white. But then the studio going, nah, it's going to be in color. So, so talk a little bit about how black and white comes into this movie. And if it was just, you know, this is how it's going to be from the beginning. Was there the thought like, oh, well, we could always release a color version if we wanted to. And then also the, the aspect ratio. But we'll get into the aspect ratio in a second. So t- tell me about black and white. Yeah, this the black and white was always 
in Rebecca's mind. You know, there was, she was not happy to make this movie unless it was in black and white, you know. So she actually rejected some bigger offers, more money involved uh, offers that were in color just because she was very clear that she needed to tell this story in black and white and four three until some producers kind of accepted and really that budget and she didn't go, she didn't stop and so when i came in the movie was already greenlit so i didn't need to argue with anyone it was i would just had to smile and have that feeling of relief like wow what a great idea what a great way of telling this story because i felt it had also to be in black and white because it was essential to the storytelling and the narrative Having said that, we use the Alexa Mini, the you know the normal Alexa, 3.2K, um, and we just desaturated everywhere. You know, we never saw an image in color for the whole shoot, except a couple of hiccups of technicalities that an image will come on set and will be the color, and suddenly we'll all go like, ah, oh, no, the devil, no, we don't want it in color. But that was it. Basically, we always see it in, we always saw it in black and white. You know, so um. But funny enough, like we were so sure that, you know, that we wanted it to be black and white that we actually painted, you know, the main house, the walls, we had to paint the walls because they were white and we wanted them darker. And, you know, and we had to decide a color and we went like, you know what, let's paint them red, very ugly red, because uh, it's very easy to select, you know, the, in post and, and just do whatever you want in terms of darkness and brightness in, in those walls. But also, just to make sure that no one, we've heard all those horror stories about movies shot in black and white turning to color. And we just wanted to make sure that this movie was never gonna be seen in color because it would be so ugly, you know, to see those red walls. <laughs> that was like, it was unbearable. So it was one of those things that it just like, never happened and lucky enough the people who bought the movie loved it the way it was and never even cared of a color version because it also never made sense anyway so so we are we're all on board on this and then the aspect ratio yeah it's like it was always like that rebecca wanted um to be four three not only to remind her of all classical movies but also it felt like four three was more character based it was more center you know made the characters more center and that's you know and more intimate so it felt kind of the right thing for this story and it felt like uh, it kind of elevated the experience of the viewer you know and, and put it more into irene's subjective eyes and world you know so four by three you mentioned a uh, feeling of claustrophobia, and that, that definitely comes yeah. through. And there are some wide shots in the movie, particularly establishing shots, uh, you know, outside of buildings and, and things like that. But one of the things I noticed quite a bit about your composition in this movie is that there are not a lot of wides. There's a lot of mediums, there's a lot of close-ups, and I, I'm assuming that's also to help enhance that feeling of, of claustrophobia. And I'm just wondering if that, uh, if this was all very much uh, intentional from the beginning. We're going to try and refrain from the big wide masters as much as we can and uh, maybe make them more contained masters masters that feel more like a medium shot what can you tell me at all about the, about the the composition process yeah i mean like um rebecca did this amazing thing that she kind of draw the whole movie and she kind of um just did this kind of very 
rough drawings of, of it all that were like kind of I want this to, to tell the story like this and um, like me she's not very good at drawing but it did really work as a as a starting tool of how to tell the story and the kind of style that she wanted to create. I, I don't usually mention my favorite shot or shots in, in a movie, but I, I feel I feel compelled. I, I have to I have to mention now, especially Please. after hearing your your uh, description of of four three, Tessa Thompson, uh, Irene. Her character falls asleep, takes a nap essentially three times. I think in the in this movie, and is each time is like woken up by the sound of I think of a grandfather clock that 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 disturbs her sleep, and she's in a very simple chair. She's napping with just her head sort of uh, slightly uh, tilted to the side. And she's lit. It's it seems entirely motivated from window light that comes in. It's like this. This is a reoccurring small note about her character. It's like you know she she lives her life, but she has these like these moments where she kind of uh, drifts off into sleep, and then she's she's woken up by by the clock each time. The framing and the lighting is so beautiful in each of those, and and it's interesting too because the first time we see her, she's sort of in a medium close. The second time's more of a medium, and the third is is a wide shot. And on each one of them, the first one I saw, I thought was just incredibly lovely. And then I was very pleased when I got to see it again, when I got to see it again, but from a slightly different perspective. And then, of course, at for a second, I was like, is am I having a quick flashback to the previous time we saw that? Oh, no, no, this story is continuing. But now I'm, I'm getting this this extra depth and extra insight into uh, to Irene that she's she takes these naps. And then by the time the third one comes along and, and it's almost just like this. A moose bouche. It's just like this little. It's this little taste of something. It's like it. It. It almost implies like there is a, a deeper, bigger thing. It's not necessarily addressed. It's just part of the story. It's part of the character, and it, it feels like such a, like a, a wonderful little like moment of respite that happens. But then she's. I won't say startled awake, but but awoken by this by the, this clock chime. Can you talk at all about how those little moments came about? And maybe maybe I'm missing something here. What, what can you can you talk about that that shot or that that repeated? No, no, theme? no, no, absolutely. Like actually, it's very interesting. It's like Irene's character is someone that is very limited by by all the rules of the society she lives in, but in a way. She's also not exteriorizing her feelings and she's not expressing them in any way, you know? And, and I think those snaps and, 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 and the movie talks a lot about the quotidianity, about the daily life, about the repetition of things uh, as time passes. As, also as a, as, a, as a housewife, for no better term, housewife in a middle class, upper middle class, uh, black neighborhood, you know. So it's like um, it's those moments that we've kind of been just because they are not exciting, they are not dramatic, they are not something kind of epic. They have been excluded from popular culture in in history, you know, in the history of literature and history of of films, especially, you know. So for us, quotidianity and repetition was very important, and just kind of that boredom that comes with doing every day the same thing. But in every time we see it, uh, this quotidianity and this repetition that it also happens as she walks home, for example, that we see it four or five times, you know, it's always somewhat different. There's always like nuances in the performance, in the leaves of the trees, in the way she, you know, every little thing kind of changes 
those little little moments. So I think the nap is is a bit of a combination of those two things. It's one is the quotidianity and the repetition and the boredom, but it's also Irene's character kind of drifting away from reality and thinking something else that you know we might not or dreaming something else that we might not know, but somewhat our imagination goes flying and goes somewhere that it's interesting. That it's like oh. What must she be dreaming? What is, and it's true that those dreams, those high, those elevated thoughts are kind of always destroyed by by the noise of of reality, of a clock or a phone or something happening that awakes her. You know, so it's um, a a little gasp of everyone's life, everyday lives, and it's something that we took a bit more time in composing, in respecting, in kind of shining a light in a different way, you know? And every day, as you say, is every day is a, bit, a little bit different, but also a little bit the same, you know? Well, I just love it. It's really, really a beautiful shot. And um, I, I'm so glad that it made the movie. It's it's so easy for those sorts of things to end up on cutting room floors, too. But it's like there was real intention with it. And the lighting in particular that's just that's falling on Tessa Thompson in, in that chair is just is spectacular. So, uh, hey, uh, Edu, Ed, Ed, I want to move on, actually, though, and talk about yes. uh, some, some I want to talk about you and I want to talk about uh, your, your career. And I know that you you started young. I know you're from Barcelona. But uh, t- tell me how you got the bug for this. How did you first realize that cinematography could be a, a career for you. How could it, you know, when, how, where, did, where did this come from? You know, I was a pretty athletic guy when I was at, at high school and I was like the kind of guy that was very good at basketball and I would, ha- I would win every single race, uh, you know. And But at some point I started to be bully, bullied at school and I started to just kind of go and hang out a lot more with clever people that were, you know, uh, my best friend Arman and uh, and the girls at school, you know, like, not like the basic guys. And suddenly, you know, like hanging out with them, I also just kind of starting sparking my creativity. And I started and talking with Arman, my you know, my best friend. You know, one day you know, when we were thirteen, we we're like, oh, it would be so good to do cinema. And it was like it's such a weird thing to be even be thinking of of a career of cinema when you're in Spain in in the 90s, you know, but he sparkled that and he was lucky that four years later the uh, cinema university was created in Barcelona and he was actually amazing and I joined the cinematography course in there after a few years. I, I was 18 by then and I didn't know what I was doing, but then I, I started, you know, working every short I could and everywhere I could. And suddenly um, I was in a, a short film being, you know, being basically the runner serving food and so on. And suddenly there was these guys, uh, you know, one of them was Arnaud Walsh, who was the, the DP. And I was like, he was in the fourth year. And those cinematography guys, they look the coolest. They look the, having the most fun. They were like having like, they were having a blast on set and not only telling the story, but we're also, you know, kind of running the show and having a great time and they were enjoying the job. So I was like very fascinated by that bunch of people. And then suddenly it's just like, oh, I want to be a cinematographer. I want to have fun. I don't want to be, you know, in production, <laughs> you know, and, and I always thought the you know, directing was too difficult and too, you know, specific for me. And, um, you know, I think cinematography took 
a lot of my boxes of what I could do and so on, you know. And it was just working very hard, being in a lot of short films for free for a long time and kind of learning, learning, learning. I was not very skillful at first, you know, but um, Who is? I just worked. It's, it's really difficult <laughs> exactly. to, to, but to no, jump but like the was Yeah, <laughs> you just like worked very hard and that's the way in, you know, like... I always remember that there were some people that were very good with cameras at the beginning, but they just took it for granted. And and the ones who worked harder and, you know, just were passionate, just, you know, started standing out. And, and I went to film school in Barcelona, which was amazing, SCAG. And then I went to NFTS in London, which was also amazing in a different way. It was a lot more experienced teachers and a lot more of an in industry. And I learned English, although still not great, my English, but I learned how to communicate and shoot in English. So that, that helped me a bunch and, you know, and obviously helped my career to, to go international, which obviously... But I did my first film at 23, a very low-budget film called Leonardo Caballeria um, that went into Cannes. It was uh, like... $10,000 um, budget and went into Cannes, shot in MiniDB. Um, but I continue, continue studying and did two more movies. And then basically Tom Ford changed my life. You know, he, you know, I was going to ask you about that world. next. So it's yeah, like, you know, so you talk about like goes, those moments know? of breakthrough in people's careers yeah. where, you know, they're yeah. toiling away so, and then suddenly something happens. How, how did Tom, uh, how, how did that, how did he find you? How did well, this, it, was, this it was a combination of things. I was in a line in the Edinburgh Film Festival at 12 o'clock at night on the, my fifth movie that day. I was alone and I started talking to the person next next to me um who happened to be a producer with a you know an amazing movie documentary called billy the kid in it and we start talking we start you know we became friends we saw the movie together and you know after a while and that and that movie i was in the festival because i shot a very weird documentary in the north pole with a friend of mine at edwards which you know kind of randomly and so sounds it was like there's kind a story behind that, that random like random <laughs> yeah no, no there's a lot of stories around that but it was random 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 and i and suddenly one year later you know happened that i i was offered a movie in spain a one million dollar movie uh that i was about to take and then suddenly there was a light in me that said you know what this is the wrong movie for you you don't understand this movie and uh, you should not do it and i uh, despite not having any, any other offers i just didn't take that movie uh, and accepted all the criticisms from my friends and my DP friends saying, are you crazy? When are you going to get offered a movie? You know, like this. And um, and I walked away and went to New York uh, and met again the Chem Karasawa, the person I met in the in the line uh, in Edinburgh Film Festival. I gave him a reel and it happened that, you know, two weeks later she received a call from Tom Ford's producer, Bob Salerno, saying, hey, we've seen everyone's reel in LA. Tom doesn't like anyone. He's looking for some young, bold, European, you know, available, cheap, fast DP. <laughs> do, you have, do you have any suggestions? I like that and... you ticked all the boxes there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and she she just kind of had my reel. She FedEx it to them. Uh, she ca- tried to contact me, but I was not answering. You know my emails or something. And suddenly one day they called me and say, "Hey, Tom Ford's just seen. You know, it landed in Tom Ford's desk, and Tom Ford at lunchtime was bored. Watch, put my reel on, and after two minutes of uh, show reel." 
that had no success in the previous two years. I was, you know, not working a lot. He just saw some very allegorical, poetic, grainy, soft, 60 millimeter handheld images and just fell in love with that and just say, I want this guy. And they called me and say, hey, Tom Ford wants you. And it's like, you know, I'm a 27 year old guy from Spain that never been in America. It's like, okay, just come on, then get on a plane. If Tom Ford likes you for the movie, you got the job, you know, your first, first choice. So I jumped on a plane, left everything behind and got, in a ba- got a bag with enough clothes for two days or two months. And after two minutes of talking to Tom, it was obvious that we had a connection. And, you know, after an hour, he gave me the, the movie and completely changed my life. And I was a single man when I was 27. And I was shooting my first movie in America, my first movie on 35. My first movie, you know, with my favorite actress, you know, Julia Moore. So it's one of those stories that never happened, but it just it just happened to me. It was one of those that it's just like um, he was in charge and he could take bold choices. And a first time director choosing almost a first time DP, very young first time DP, mm-hmm. those things never happen. But it did happen to me because there was a, you know, a brave, very talented man that saw something in, in my reel, you know. So I started Tom Ford, you know, five weeks before starting principal photography, you know. That's really great. And it's uh, it's great that you describe your reel, too, as like this grainy 16 millimeter, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. You didn't say was, you didn't say handheld, yeah. but I'm imagining handheld when you, when you say yeah, that. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and so many absolutely. DPs I know, they don't they say, oh, I never get a job for my reel. I make this thing. Oh, yeah. I send it out. But it's never the reel that actually gets me the work. And and your exactly. career changes entirely because because of your reel. Your reel happened to be in the yeah. right place at the right time. And it just exactly. it's, it happened. It's crazy to think that a director can go for a DP that young with such little experience, not great English, you know, not, I didn't have a visa or I wasn't in the union at that, you know, so suddenly I was doing a $5 million movie shooting in 35 in, in LA, you know, with Colin Firth and Julian Moore, not bad, you know. No, not not bad at all, uh, and and especially with so much like buzz about that movie too, which was yeah. uh, which is really good. You know, actually, the first time though that your work came to my attention was Buried. Uh, I I saw oh, Buried, yeah. and I knew it was like ninety percent taking place uh, in a box, <laughs> and I have to imagine that presented a. I mean, it's a very unique challenge and you, you pull it off beautifully. And I, I know when I was watching, I had to, I, I was guessing, I was like, they must have like seven or eight different size boxes. They must have these boxes where like the panels come off. They must have like, yes. it must have been a very uh, elaborate, simple set that it was, was uh, not simple at all. When you realize all the things that had to go into that, just because there'd be no way to physically fit the camera in the box that how it was supposed to be, you had to get yeah. creative. Can, can you? Talk a little bit about the the challenges that Buried uh, presented. Yeah, it still remains one of my favorite movies I've done, just because of the challenge, but also you know what we achieve. You know, it's it's a very very fun and enjoyable movie to watch. You know, and it, and it's a it's a thriller in a box. You know, you you know we never leave the box. We shot all in a stage in Barcelona for I think it was fifteen or eighteen days. You know, and. Um, very quickly on 35 and it was just like 
Yes, exactly. You get it right. It was seven boxes that we had different ones for different shots, for different technicalities. One was very long, one was wider, one was, you know, like, so every shot had a different thing. One could, you know, you could remove the walls up and down as you you rotate the camera, you know. So it was like um, very stressful, very difficult, very challenging. And, you know, again, that was like, I was 28, not that much experience. And and shooting in a very, very low light situation, very contained space with a Ryan Reynolds starring, you know, like a major actor. And it was amazing. It was like one of those movies that like, it also completely changed my life. And it was like, suddenly I, I felt like, wow, what we achieved here is it actually never gonna be done again that everyone anyone shoots a movie in a smaller seat in a smaller more more contained space than this you know so and it's like it was it was also very challenging and inspiring every day to come on set because it was like every day will be like let's do something different let's let's change the the rules let's let's now let's do a water let's you know like you know we'll be changing every day every scene will be a different a, a different setup, a different, and we kind of like kind of promise ourselves never to repeat a setup. You never, you know, for a different scene, we'll never repeat. Obviously, in the edit, you know, the shots get played twice, but we never, you know, when we change scene, we never do the same shot. We will always find something else, you know, the, a different way of telling the story. And that was kind of fascinating and thrilling and, you know, and very inspiring, you know, as a filmmaker, you know. Yeah, I, I, I would say so. And I feel like you really thrive when some of the stuff that we take for granted in, in cinema is, is taken away from you. Like you, you've taken away beautiful vistas and scenes. You've taken away, you know, uh, all, all kinds of things. You're working in, the, in just the, these few elements. And I have to say that uh, in passing, you got such great visuals out of situations where there wasn't a lot of extra dressing going on. I don't mean necessarily in front of the camera, but like it's very sparse musically. Your visuals are telling the story. I don't know if it's this removing of elements in which you're, you're thriving, but and removing things and passing like like a color and, and that sort. But I feel like you're very skilled at, at taking uh, limitations and turning them into assets. I always think that it's it's good to take risks in filmmaking. I always feel like it's 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 kind of one of the most exciting and and thrilling things about making films is kind of not taking anything for granted, taking risks, suffering a little bit just because of, you know, of the choices you make and that always kind of sparks creativity sparks, you know, the audience to be more intelligent and you to be better work and I always feel like I'm, if I take risk, if I suffer, if I, if I, it means that I am passionate about what I'm doing, that I'm like, you know, and, and I, like I'm making, I'm, I'm taking a stand, I'm taking a, a choice, I'm making a strong choice. And that's always, you know, I call it, you know, losing her. You know, if you, if I, if I lose her because of, of the nerves of, of doing something, it's a good thing. It just means that I, I'm there and, uh, you know, and yeah, I'll become bold eventually, but, you know, I'm soon, but it's, that's all for a good reason. You know, I'm just suffering for the beauty of, of making good films, you know? So it's like, um, and you're right. I mean, I, I tried not to repeat myself and not try, try not to do the same movie again and again, but just keep changing, keep learning, keep growing, keep, keep kind of, putting myself into different challenges, different views of the world, different vision, director's visions, and, and trying to just 
making a filmography that is not about me. It's it's about films and characters and, and, and telling those stories. I think that's wonderful. And there's a part of me that just kind of wants to say, that's a wonderful place to leave this interview. We should just wrap it up right here. I don't think you can say anything that, that's more wonderful than that. But I do <laughs> want to talk to you about at least one more thing, which is your commercial work. And now we've talked about the art and the love and your passion. But a lot of people will say that the commercial work that they do is more like commerce. It's like, you know, you've, you know, there may not necessarily be the same excitement over selling a new car versus or a new cologne or whatever it is over. But I, I will tell you, your commercial career, I, and I'm guessing that it came after your feature career, because for a lot of people, it doesn't go that way. Usually they will have commercials before they get to move into features. But uh, I'm getting the suspicion that and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that you establish yourself as a feature DP and then all of these other people said, oh, we want that guy. We want that guy to come make these commercials. And you've done Super Bowl spots and car commercials and cologne commercials and a Star Wars car commercial and all kinds of just beautiful, fantastic projects that, uh, you know, uh, that they don't have your name on it, at least not when it goes out into into the world. And uh, it's commerce. It's about selling a product. It's about telling a little contained story. How does how does that 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 passion for filmmaking uh, change, or or maybe it doesn't at all? Maybe you're just as passionate about telling a commercial for Uber Eats as you are for, yeah. for all, all these stories. Well, tell me about I you mean, and commercials. It's not, yeah, it's not the same. It's obviously you know you're putting a bit of your soul into selling a product, you know, and and it's not as uh, pure feeling as as making a film, obviously. But there is something that you know that it's a joy about being a DP is that you can you know, jump from one thing to the other. And especially if you have a feature film career and they want you, you know, in commercials, it does really like, you know, basically it's a great way of spending your time off of movies, you know. It's a great way of schedule and it's a great possibility staying with your family, which is very important and very difficult being a DP. You know, so like it's obviously a money maker as well, but it's also like Sometimes you also find directors, find, you know, crew, find tools that you can also apply for filmmaking because filmmaking is as well a muscle that you must exercise, you know, you must learn. To, so it kind of, it's a great way of spending time and, you know, choosing your best project to be next, you know, and, and not being as anxious to, you know, to go from feature to feature. Because features are, I put the soul into a feature. You know, it's like three months that I don't see my friends, my parents or my family, and I'm like just there, you know, and it's very difficult to keep having a normal life doing feature after feature, you know? So like kind of, I mean, it's a joy and there's not many jobs in life that you can have that kind of both sides, you know, that you can be doing an artistic thing, but also the next day jump into a very commercial that pays you very well thing, you know, and, and you don't put your name on it. So it's kind of, it's pretty a good deal for a DP, to be honest. A hundred percent. Most DPs I know wish that they had more commercials, wish that they had more stuff, even though they, they don't necessarily uh, get, uh, get any fame when it airs. Usually the schedules are better. They get to sleep in their own beds sometimes. They get to they get to ha- have a, a decent paycheck. All, all of those things uh, come, come with it, which is, which is wonderful. So uh, before we wrap this up, though, Edu, are you on social media at all? Where, where can people find you online? My website is the best place to see my work. Um, it's edugrau.com. 
edugrau.com and I'm Instagram but I'm not the, the best at it you know I just put a lot of stuff from my life and just not not a lot of things of my movies or my projects but you know if you get you, you want to get a grasp of, of who I am yeah I mean Edward Grau on Instagram or Edu Grau on Facebook I'm there and talk to me I'm nice and if you write to me I'll, I'll answer <laughs> If they're listening to the sound of my voice, I'm sure they will. Thanks again for being on the show. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Edu Grau. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Edu. Yeah, it was was a ton of fun. Can't wait to, to have you back on again. And now, short ends. So Ilya, now it is our time for our patent pending short ends segment. What is your patent pending short end? Wow. Well, there was some data that was just released regarding Black Friday. Black Friday, you know, this whole sort of like end of November is the time when the consumers of America consume. They spend their money. They go out there. And sure enough, we've been well trained. I mean, like from childhood, this is when we do it. The Black Friday weekend, uh, the estimate was that I heard on the radio the other day was six billion dollars has been spent in the U.S., which seems to be extremely high for like two or three shopping days. Six billion dollars is the uh, yeah. is the est- estimate. So in light of this, uh, I feel like I should really actually. I mean, tout prices something. aren't going to be this low until after Christmas, uh, like a month from now. So uh, might as you well. Know, I was going to say Black Friday is now basically seems like it's the entire month of November. Mm-hmm. And I am and I think that people have gotten pretty liberal on this and the days of like, oh, no, it's going to be a sale for 12 hours. And then it's over. Black Friday is the most ominous thing to call a day. Yeah, it really is. It it, like, it doesn't sound like a po- a positive thing. Black Friday. <laughs> it sounds like, oh yeah, it's it's the day where you know you wake up and there's a cobalt standing on your chest, pointing at your face and shrieking at you in the morning. I wonder what they think in Ireland of of America having a Black Friday when they've got like a bloody Sunday and they've got all of these terrible you know yeah. these these horrible things associated with these names. Truthfully and scarily, uh, there are people who die every year on Black Friday being trampled in like you know rushes for. For consumption, so it's happened. But that's at all changed yeah. now that Black Friday is so such an online phenomenon. You, you know, you're I not, don't. You're not going to get trampled true. by your computer, hopefully. Oh man! If I you hope not. if you are, you're using it wrong. Oh, okay. So so that's all preamble. I want to talk about something I've actually talked about on the show before, which is actually a light from a. It's, it's a Chinese light with a German sounding na- uh, spelling of a name, uh, but it's pronounced ProLight. Uh, P R O L Y C H T. And if you go to Hot Rod Cameras, you'll see it uh, on the homepage somewhere there. They are doing probably the best Black Friday thing I've ever heard or seen or come across. And I have to give a shout out right now. They only have a few dealers. Hot Rod Cameras is one of them. But their flagship product, which is the 300FS, they call it the Orion 300FS. It is uh, essentially a 300-watt LED six color light and it basically uses the same sort of light engine as like the very expensive airy orbiter but it's actually brighter than the orbiter at least at Mm. 5600 and it has all these really amazing colors that it can put together and it it like for example the white setting on the on the light even though there's no white leds it makes it with all these colors uh it goes from 2000 to 20,000, which is the largest widest range of any light out there and it's about the same size as like a like an aperture 300 product it costs $2,150 and has a bunch of relatively affordable accessories to go with it. But the deal that ProLight is doing, and I haven't seen anyone do this, but we've already sold a bunch of these lights, is you buy two and you get a third one free. 
which is like a two thousand plus dollar value. And so uh, we have some just some clients buy, buy to uh, get one free and then turn around and sell that one. Jesus Christ! You you could just do that too, and then actually. Uh, I, I didn't want to like, give anyone this suggestion, but yes, then you could uh, you could amortize your expense. But I, I will tell you that people out there who have grip trucks, sprinter vans, that sort of stuff, you know, uh, I should say electric trucks, any sort of uh, small package, and they still have a bunch of tungsten units. This light is a pretty incredible tungsten replacement and not a real sacrifice. I mean, the quality of the tungsten light is brilliant. And just for shits and grins, you get red, green, and blue in all these other colors. Plus, it's all got all the gels pre-programmed into it. It's got uh, a light color picker where you can use your phone, point it at any light source, and it'll match it. Wow. It's got, yeah, it's got a, really? yeah, it's got a bunch of really, really good stuff. And that it's, is some science fiction shit right there man and it's all made of metal and taking nothing away from uh, other lighting manufacturers out there that are not doing all metal housings i mean this thing's made rough and tough it's made to be you know be able to be used we've been talking to a lot of different lighting houses lately and they are all very interested in this light or i've been picking it up and some people have renting it and uh, but i'll tell you i think that the people who are sort of like the owner operator trucks right now and they want a light they can kind of stand in to do a lot of work especially like lights like you know leds have not done a great job on the tungsten side and there's some people out there who still want to keep using tungsten there's now that this led has come along there's really i don't think a lot of reason to hold on to those especially since they're super efficient don't take much power have a bunch of cool accessories including a little leco attachment which is just brilliant so uh yeah the pro light orion 300 fs brilliant light two thousand dollars you buy two of them you get a third one free and you could fill up a cart of these really easily and uh, you could light basically anything because the light can kind of do anything. You could even gang them together. There's all kinds of cool stuff you can do with it. So anyway, really like it. It's totally worth it. And this is the best Black Friday deal I think I've ever seen on any sort of lighting product. So, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a big deal. Sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so Ben, what's your uh, what's your short end this week? What do, what do you got going on? I stumbled across an app that I think is a really cool app. And I, I think I've spoken on here about like writing uh, collaborative writing apps, not screenwriting apps, but the pre-work of writing, which, you know, in, in the projects I've done a lot, is a lot of index cards on cork boards moving around. And when COVID hit, Bob DeRosa and I, who we've worked on several projects together, we were in the middle of writing a project that we hopefully will soon be able to talk about. We've already been recording it. It's an audio project. And I was struggling to find the replacement for the index cards on the corkboard. And I settled on a thing called Miro that's kind of a mind mapping, whatever, kind of brainstorming software that's easily used by more than one person. But recently I stumbled across something called Writer's Room Pro, which costs about the same as Miro. Hmm. So subscription or you buy it once. It, it is a subscription and I wish it was something I could just buy, but it's like nine bucks a month. That's for one person. If it's two people, it's 18 bucks a month. And if it's more than that, they say, you know, contact them directly and they'll kind of work it out with you. So I, I'm assuming that it's probably about $9 per seat. But if you look it up and it's just writersroompro.com and we're not being sponsored by them or anything, I, I just think it's a really interesting thing because they've taken all of the character boards and episode boards and all, all the stuff that you would do and they've made it uh, completely online. But also they've made it so that if you were in a writer's room and in a lot of these writer's rooms, they'll just have a, you know, a, a big screen TV that they're throwing the cards to. Well, now you can use that interactively on one of those screens hmm. and it's designed to work with desktop 
desktops, laptops, tablets, and phones. So you can use it on virtually anything. And I believe it's Mac and Android and PC and whatever. It's very feature packed. And I was uh, like, right after I found it, I reached out to Bob and I was like, hey. And he's like, yeah, if we have another project come up, uh, you know, soon we might even try using it. Again, even like Bob and I are both, uh, you know, thrice vaccinated and not afraid to work in the same room, but we might use that instead of the uh, index card corkboard uh, push pin situation. You know, because, you know, you can really injure yourself on those push pins. But yeah, uh, they're deadly, deadly. More than that, like this thing generates uh, episode outlines and it automates a lot of the stupid work that you end up having to do, compiling stuff and making lists and blah, blah, blah. I wonder if it was an opportunistic thing or if it was something that was already in the works because it came out about a year ago. So it was during the pandemic that this thing first surfaced. But writer's rooms are probably going to eventually go back to being somewhat in person. But I, I do think that probably in some instances, depending on who the writers are, depending on who the showrunner is, you know, you might have half the team in New York and half the team in L.A. Or you might have, you know, one writer in Lexington, Kentucky and one writer in, in Europe somewhere. You basically could bring other people in. And because it's a cloud based thing, it appears to be fully interactive. So anyone can write a card or move a card around or whatever, annotate stuff. And uh, I think if you're looking to write uh, specifically with a group of people or even one co-writer, which is not unusual, I think it's at least worth checking out. Nice. Yeah, it sounds really cool. Uh, I would totally check that out. Uh, Do it. We, should, we should also probably give a quick shout out to our fine people over at Assemble.tv. Uh, Assemble.tv, oh. if you have not uh, heard us talk about it, go back and listen to one of our other shows. We talk about Assemble TV a bunch, but it's a brilliant, brilliant cloud-based app. And you can get a month free courtesy of the Cinematography Podcast by entering the promo code CINEPOD, C-I-N-E-P-O-D. Get a free month of uh, Assemble.tv. Yeah, and and I don't feel like this steps on Assemble.tv's toes at all because I don't think Assemble and this do the same thing. No, even n- kind not of. at all. All right, well, Ilya, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. We are there Monday through Friday. And uh, if you have questions or need gear type of uh, advice or actually need to buy gear, call my team, call me, ask for me, no problem. And if you're a fan of the show, come in and uh, we have a few shirts left. You can get a uh, Hot Red Cameras shirt Angrily for free. demand a shirt. If you angrily demand it, they might throw you out. My my team is a little salty too. No, not no. if you're gonna if you're a paying customer, man. Uh, if you're that angry, I, I've told what if them. What if they? I've br- given them brusquely. What if they're kind of curt in their in their request? Well, hey, Ilya, I, I you know can, can I get the shirt that you said you'd give me? Like if they said it like that, would you kick them out for that, or would you no? Just kind but of that's give them that's not the same thing. You you when you say angrily demand, it's not. No, curt. no, I'm like saying like yeah. where's the line? Like at what point is it like when they walk <laughs> the in? The line like, is hey is motherfucker, give me my offense. fucking shirt. Yeah, that that's mm-hmm. that's it. If they if they if they yeah. go there, or if they're personally offensive to one of the the fine people that work there, then then yeah, you're. Oh, not I mean, don't shirt. offend anyone. But you know, yeah. But, Usually, but I feel like you people can... are really nice. Usually, when they're asking for a shirt, they're not angry. They're they're go, like happy. They're no, getting they're getting shirt. a shirt, man. They're getting free free clothing. And and I, I took a look. We've got something basically between two uh, X and small. So we got something between two X and small for for nice. most people. So so that's good. Yeah. No X excess. No. I need to get small. one of those shirts. I don't think I have one of your shirts. I, you, Wait, I, do I have? If you if you ever uh, emerge from your cave and come on out to Burbank, no problem. Gotcha. Got oh, your man, that's a that's like a 15 minute drive for me. I don't know if I can really handle that. <laughs> you, you might have to go there for so, some other reason. You never know. <laughs> you never know. 
So uh, you can find me at mm-hmm. Ben Rock online, but mostly, like I've been saying, you can find me on Facebook at the group Needs a Werewolf. Please feel free to join it and pitch your ideas for what movies, TV shows, plays, songs, novels could use a werewolf, and you know, p- pitch your story. It's we're up to five hundred members. I, I am not a five hundred me- members on my stupid werewolf group. I am not a member, but I saw you repost something. It flew by in my feed. Someone had posted like an actual werewolf movie inside of where it needs a werewolf i thought that was pretty funny so, <laughs> so. yeah no some honestly some werewolf movies need more werewolf ah gotcha okay. i gotta be honest okay. i mean there are great werewolf movies but then sometimes you watch a werewolf movie and you're like they where was the werewolf the boat on the amount of on the amount of werewolf and we're recording this by the way today as we're recording is joe dante's birthday director of among many amazing movies the howling which is absolutely my favorite werewolf movie ever made nice well uh i i don't think i've ever seen it (laughs) (gasps) i know american werewolves in london have not seen came out the same year as american werewolf in london and i i love american werewolf in london i will take the howling over american werewolf okay that transformation sequence though in american werewolf the transformation sequences in the howling i think are just as impressive and they are made by so Rick Baker did the transformation sequence in American Werewolf in London, famously. And one of his protégés is a guy named Rob Bottin, who also did all the special effects for The Thing, the John Carpenter movie, just one year later. And he did the transformation effects for The Howling. And uh, it's a very different kind of transformation. Uh, not, not to get too in the weeds about this, but American Werewolf in London is a body horror movie about how horrible it is to turn into a werewolf. Mm. The Howling is about how awesome it is to be a werewolf and our hero turns away from that call to become a werewolf. You know, uh, Joe Dante's got some other really incredible movies too. We should just mention Gremlins, too, like Inner Space. Yes, Gremlins. Matinee. No, uh, Joe Dante's an amazing filmmaker. The Burbs. And, and, you remember The and Burbs? I love, his, I love The Burbs, yes. I love his work. Uh, the Howling will probably be always my favorite of all of his films. Just love it. Love it. Well, I was anyway, gonna, I was going to say Tom Hanks, his star really got shiny after the Burbs. It really did. It was yeah, shiny. I before. mean, the Burbs is great. Honestly, Joe Dante is like one of the greats in terms of balancing horror, real horror, real scary horror with absurd comedy. And probably Gremlins is the movie that encapsulates that the best. He's just a rock solid filmmaker and he makes movies that I love. And The Howling, which is I think his first film after, because he was a Roger Corman guy, after he got out of uh, Corman University, I think that was his first major film. He made the original Piranha. Mm, yeah, I remember Piranha. That, uh, that yeah, is James Cameron made the sequel. <laughs> Piranha 2. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, hey, uh, we should wrap this up. Uh, ben, who should we thank? As always, we should thank Alana Cody, first and foremost, our intrepid producer, kicking all the ass, getting us interviews. We have some really cool interviews coming up very soon. We should, as always, thank Ben Katz. Hopefully this week we haven't made his life too difficult, but, uh, you know, I'm always afraid that I'm going to sound like an idiot. So Ben is our backstop. He's our our last best hope for not sounding stupid. (laughs) And lastly, we should thank Kay's and congratulate Kay's Alatrachi, who composed every scrap of music you heard in this episode. Kay's just uh, directed a project in Atlanta. I don't know if he's allowed to talk about what it is, but it is an episode of a bigger project for somebody else. Mm. And uh, he just went off to Atlanta and directed it. So uh, further uh, completing my theory that uh, he doesn't need any of us. He he directs, he does visual effects, he does color correction, and uh, he is a kick-ass composer. 
Yeah, I, I'm pretty much convinced that he's going to Jim Cameron all of us. He's going to like, you know. All of us. Yeah, he's, he's, he's going to hire us all and then fire us and do our job better than we were doing it beforehand. That's right. It's uh, it's lonely at the top that way. Not having any help, but, uh, but no. Heavy weighs the crown. <laughs> all right, Ben. I think that's just about going to do it for another edition of the Cinematography Podcast, this time with a lot of slappy, happy talk here at the end. But I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe I would. All right. A little bit. We'll we'll see see what Ben leaves in the show. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.